right, good morning, Rooted. This is our 10th week of doing Facebook Live Sunday School. Uh, I've gotten used to it a little bit, but still looking forward to being able to see all of you guys. And uh, Lord willing, that'll be coming soon. Now, next Sunday, uh, May 31st, we will have normal worship services at 9 and 11. Um, we'll have Kids World as well at 9 and 11, but we won't do any Sunday school, trying to keep from packing people together in a little room. So what I'm going to do this week is either I will shoot Sunday school during the week and just post it at uh, 10:15, or I'll run over here and do it live. Most of you will not be able to join me live next week anyway because you'll either be coming from church if you came to the 9 o'clock service, or you're going to church if you're coming to the 11 o'clock service. And so we won't have the live part of it so much, but we definitely will have Sunday school in some facet, and you can watch it at your own convenience. Thank you so much for watching these weeks. You've been so faithful. You have encouraged my heart. I go back and read all of your comments and uh, just enjoy the fellowship that we have even in the moment. And remember, I can't see you. I'm teaching to a screen. I'm in the back conference room. In the admin building, and I'm in here by myself with an iPad, a MacBook, and an iPhone, and uh, trying to coordinate everything together so that you can uh, see what's going on and hear me, and I can see you a little bit. So if I say something that encourages you, like it, and uh, and, and encourage me while I'm teaching. And if I make you mad, give me one of those too. I don't care. Let me know how you feel, and that's engagement, even if it's negative engagement. I, I appreciate it, and. Uh, and, and let me know how it's going and comment and uh, encourage me while I'm teaching. And then when it gets done with things, like the video and then share it. It's the easiest way to spread the gospel. Now go ahead and get your Bible out and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have been working our way through the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 problems or enemies that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth about the problems that they were having. And, you know, 1 Corinthians is a response. It's the response to a letter that they had written to Paul. And Paul is writing back, and he takes time to deal with these things. On the screen behind me, I've listed for you again the enemies. Now, we have already dealt with division. Paul spends four chapters on division, and we spent four or five weeks on it. That gives you a little bit of the value he places on the danger of this particular enemy. And then we dealt with the enemy of impurity because someone in the church uh, was having a relationship with his stepmother and all of the things that went with that and the practice of church discipline and the personal purity. And uh, some of that we'll touch on that again as it comes back around in chapters uh, 5 and some in the later end of chapter 6. And then last week we talked about personal differences Is it ever right for a Christian to take someone to court? And the answer, of course, is yes, there are times it is right and court is ordained of God because it's part of human government and the human government is ordained of God. Romans chapter 13 makes that clear. But if you're ever going to court because you are not willing to suffer loss, because you are not willing to be defrauded, then you're in the wrong to take your brother to court. And Paul uses this expression, dare any of you, how dare you, Take your brother to court instead of just suffering the loss instead. God is able to give you much more than you can ever lose. And so please understand that there is a time to go to court. But for most of us, this morning, most of us, if we're willing to suffer loss, there's no reason to go. Just trust God to deal with those things. Now, we come to chapter 7. And uh, 
I see that we have some guests watching. Kenny just told me that uh, Carrie's parents are watching. I'm going to apologize ahead of time for this class today. I am glad I am teaching this class through Facebook Live, so I cannot see you today, all right? Because this is just an awkward class. Because chapter 7, we're going to be dealing with the enemies of marriage. Now, marriage is not the enemy, uh, regardless of what you may or may not think. But there are certainly some problems in marriage. And uh, let me get here to the right slide I have here. And we're going to be dealing with that today. And some of these things in here are just awkward. But I'm not really a teacher of the Bible if I avoid the difficult parts I've got to teach you the whole counsel of God. There are parts that are awkward to talk about. And if you have kids who are watching this this morning, I always try to be very discreet in what I say. But I have to be plain enough for you to understand what I'm talking about. And if you read the first couple of verses of chapter 7, you'll know exactly where I'm going in regards to this. But before I get to chapter 7, verse 1... I gave you a homework assignment, and I know some of you have texted me during the week or Facebook messaged me or emailed me about the homework assignment asking for clarification. And here is the homework assignment. Paul states in chapter 7, verse number 7, that he wishes that men, all men and women by default, were even as he was, single, unmarried. And then he says it again in um, verse 8 that it's better for them to stay unmarried. And then in verse 25 through 35, he goes into more detail about it, how it's better not to be married. And I asked you to resolve the conflict that there seems to be with what Paul is saying and what God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 1, verse 27, where he stated, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he made him a wife. He made Adam Eve. And yet Paul states, I wished everybody was as I was, unmarried. It's better for you to be unmarried. So how can God say, it's better for you not to be alone? And Paul said, no, it's best for you to be alone. How do we resolve that? Why is there a contradiction? And I told you there's a little phrase in here that clears it all up for us. And your homework assignment was for you to find that phrase. Now, before I show you the phrase, I want to remind you that what God said in Genesis 1 and in chapter 2 is the general rule. It is God's will for most people to be married. It's obviously not always God's will because there are people who are in the middle of God's will who are not married. Not married. I had an elderly lady in my church who was unmarried, and uh, she was at the point of her life where it was obvious she was probably never going to get married. And she told me one time, she said, I know it was God's will for me not to be married. She said, because my life has been so happy and so fulfilled without it that it was just God's plan for me. But the general rule is, according to Genesis chapter 1, that God has a man and a woman and brings them together. It's good for us to be married. Paul gives us the exception to the rule. And we know it's the exception to the rule because of the little phrase in chapter 7, verse 26. Now, it may be worded a little bit in your Bible if you're using a different version. I'm in the King James, which is what I always teach from. Paul says this in verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be, or you're bound to a wife, seek not to be loose, or you're loose from a wife, seek not a wife. One goes, what is the present distress that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the persecution that's going on against the Christians in Corinth and around the world in the Roman Empire during that time. And he's reminding them that, you know, part of the persecution was the confiscation of property, being imprisoned, 
being put to death. He said, it's better in this present distress that you be like me, be unmarried. Because there's certain things that persecution brings on a family, certain stresses and things that it's just better, you'd be better off not to be married. That's what he's saying in the whole passage. Now, he does deal with the fact that the woman who's married seeks to please her husband and the husband who's married seeks to please the wife but the single person can focus on just pleasing the Lord and all of these other things. And we'll deal with some of that as we get more into it. But I want you to understand that Paul is is stating the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. And that's how we can reconcile what God said in Genesis chapter 1 with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As a general rule, it's not good for man to be alone. But in times of persecution, in times of oppression, it's better not to be married because you have to be concerned with your family instead of being able to focus on the things of God for your own protection. And in that We can certainly agree. And that is the present distress. And I'll go ahead and tell you that I have read 1 Corinthians many times and never picked up on those words in this present distress. And yet it makes perfect sense that Paul is reminding us that because of the persecution, it's better that you were like he was unmarried. Now, if you found that in your homework, good for you. When you get back in here, when we have Sunday school again together, I'm going to give you a gold star on the name chart that I keep on the wall for those who attend. Now, if you've been here, you know I don't have any chart. You also know you're not getting a gold star, but good for you for studying. And if you didn't find it, but you looked for it, good for you because you got in the Word of God this week, and that's what it's all about. Not finding the right answer necessarily, but investing your life and time in knowing this book. All right, now let's get into what he says, right? Because he's talking about the enemies of marriage. And the very first enemy that he mentions in chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, that the greatest enemy of marriage, one of the greatest enemies, is the neglect of the physical side of marriage. Now, I know this is an awkward topic, but I'll just go and tell you that in our churches today, there is an alarming number of Christian couples who are not really dedicated to each other. They're not dedicated to each other. They are legally married, but not dedicated to each other. And I'll just go and be honest with you. There's a whole lot of lack when it comes to teaching and preaching on that subject, right? We're to be dedicated to one another. And part of being dedicated to one another is that we are concerned about the sexual needs of the person that God brought into our life. We're concerned about all of their needs because I'm dedicated to them, to my wife, and she is dedicated to me. That's the way it's supposed to be, all right? Now, I kidded last week that I hope Anna was listening to this. And I'm just going to tell you straight up front, regardless of what I say today, I'm a happily married man and I'm very satisfied in my marriage because my wife is obedient to the Lord and I seek to be obedient as well. And when both parties are obedient, it's difficult for the devil to tempt us. In fact, that's what the verse is telling us. It tells us in verse 3 that we are to render due benevolence. Why? Verse 2, to avoid fornication. Boy, fornication, all right? Now, I've not done a survey, but just by reading the verse, I would have to say that it is unlikely for a man or a woman to have an affair if they're getting the due benevolence at home. That's what Paul is stating, the due benevolence. And it's our responsibility as husbands to make sure the physical needs, the sexual needs of our wives are met. Wives in plural as I'm talking to husbands, not that I have multiple wives, all right? And it's the woman's job as the wife to make sure the physical needs of the husband are met. Now, I'm going to speak in some general terms here, 
All right. It may not necessarily be true about your relationship, but these are just some things that are considered normal thought in society. Normal thought in society is the man sex drive is much stronger than the woman's. All right. And that the woman is being gracious because she has to be the giver. And he's the aggressor. Now, I've met some women that certainly break that rule and some men who certainly break that rule. But I'm just speaking in general terms. But what I'm stating is, is that Paul is telling us, regardless of the situation that God has put you in, who's the aggressor, who's not the aggressor, who needs it more than that, is irrelevant. The teaching is, is that we are supposed to be so invested in the well-being of our spouse, that whatever their needs are, we're to work to try to meet those needs in that realm. All right. Now, the Bible gives us clear indication of perversion and things that exist in that. And Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about meeting the needs in the natural means. Now, God has given us a natural outlet for our sexual desires, and it is marriage. That's what he's given us. All right. Let me just stop for a second and say this. And once again, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm speaking just in a general rule in my experience in independent Baptist churches and other churches of like faith. All right. God gave us marriage as the outlet for our sexual desires. And they are natural. All right. But not everybody enjoys that outlet in the sense that not everybody's married. And so be careful in flaunting your ability to have the outlet. I think I'm being too arcane, too cagey. I need to be more plain, all right? Be careful with your public displays of affection, all right? I don't care if you kiss your wife, but I'll just be a little peck. I don't need to see more than that publicly, all right? And all of this sometimes, you know, the handsiness and, and be careful in public, be careful in public because not everybody has the outlet that you have and it's not all about you and you flaunting the privilege that God has given you and you could be lighting fires and creating passions in other people that they don't have any outlet for, all right? I love my wife, but I don't have to be all over her like some hormonal teenager in public to prove that I love my wife, all right? I love my wife and I prove I love my wife by laying my life down for her as Christ loved the church. That's loving your wife, not being able to keep your hands off of her when you're in public, all right? Be careful about the things because not everybody enjoys that benefit but that is the benefit that god has given us all right he grants us these things now in verse 9 we realize that god deals with us where we are because he says paul says if you can't contain get married for it's better to marry than to burn and the burn there means with passion all right if you can't contain it if you can't control it marry this is the natural outlet all right the problem is sometimes you get married and the natural outlet stops because of the friction within the marriage. And it's wrong. It's wrong. And it creates opportunity for fornication. And it creates temptation where there doesn't need to be temptation. God brought you together. So Brother Dusty, you don't know my husband or you don't know my wife. I don't. I don't. But if you are married, the Bible says, don't seek to get out of it. All right? Learn to make it work. And if you're the type of man or the type of woman that uses the sexual relationship as leverage... In your marriage, shame on you. Shame on you. You're not right with God. You're not right with God. And if you use it as, as, as punishment or a reward, whatever the case may be, you're not right with God. You're not. Because the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to be dedicated to helping our spouse in this area. All right? Now, as you get older, you might not need it as much. That's perfectly okay. 
hey, go on. It's between you and your spouse. People ask me all the time. Not all the time. I do get questions sometimes about what's allowed in marriage. The Bible says this. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. All right? What you do with your wife is none of my business. I don't care. All right? Now, Proverbs makes it clear that to bring another person into that relationship is wrong. It's wrong. Let her, let her satisfy you at all times. Let it just be between you and your wife. All right? Not others in the street. So it's between you and your wife. But what the two of you do, if it's consensual, I don't care. I don't care. Swing from the chandelier, I don't care. All right? I don't care. The Bible didn't give us any guidelines in regards to that. But it's in the marriage bed. That's what makes it holy and acceptable before the Lord. It's between the two of you. But keep it in your room, not in Walmart, and not in the church. All right? And don't use it as leverage against one another. Don't use it. To get what you want and to manipulate man or woman. Don't use it that way. And don't forget that you have an obligation to your spouse in that area. Just like you have an obligation to pay your bills and to take care of things. It is a command from God. Alright? Now, I'll go ahead and warn you, fellas. And I can speak to the fellas because I am one. If you approach your wife along the lines of, this is an obligation, you better fulfill it. You might get what you need, but... it. It won't be very enjoyable, right? Cultivate and love your wife. Lay down your life for her. Sacrifice for her. And she'll be much more willing to be receptive to your advances when the time comes. And it works both ways, all right? That is the most difficult passage of Scripture I've had to preach through in a long time, all right? But it's the truth of the gospel, and I just want you to get that that's what he's teaching us, all right? You have a responsibility if you're married. The sexual needs of your spouse is part of your responsibility. Do your best to fulfill them, and don't refrain from that unless you do so by agreement, right? By agreement. Just for a certain amount of time so you can give yourself to spiritual things, alright? In fact, he uses the term in verse 5, don't defraud one another. What does defraud mean? Don't steal from each other, alright? Don't place your spouse in the position of being able to be tempted by other things because you're not willing to fulfill your side of the commitment that you made to one another, alright? Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter against them. Why does he say that? Because sometimes they'll make you angry, all right? Wives, take care of your husbands. Submit to their leadership. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. Doesn't mean that at all. Part of those two things joined together in beautiful harmony that God created. And work and be dedicated to one another in every facet of life. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. All of those things. And then you will not be tempted in those same ways. Now, I, I need to say this as well. Sexual desire has many sinful outlets. But sexual desire is not in itself sinful. It's natural. It's the way God made us. All right? He made me to be attracted to girls. Unless there's any doubt in your mind... I am. Girls. He made girls to be attracted to men. Alright? It's natural. It's natural. Right? That feeling that you feel when somebody walks by and they're good looking and it's natural. Alright? There's many negative outlets. 
But the desire itself is a God-given desire and should be channeled toward your spouse. Okay? The reason why I say that is because I grew up in an environment that made the sexual desire itself sinful. It's not sinful. God made it. And God made it so Christians can enjoy the benefit of communion and intimacy and for procreation so we can raise some little Christians who can run up and take the, take the sword from us and join the fight for us on down the road when we're all too old to do it ourselves. God is for those things. And He's for sex in the bounds of marriage. It is not a sin. It is not wrong. It's not dirty. It's not vile. God made it. Right? Just make sure you're expressing it in the right and correct way. Biblical channels. And if you're joining me for the first time, I apologize for the Sunday school lesson ahead of time. But it is definitely in the Word of God. It's definitely in the Word of God. All right? And God has given us an outlet, and that outlet is marriage. All right? That's the first enemy of marriage, the neglect of the physical side of marriage. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have any way of checking, and I don't really want to know, but I hope some of you are convicted about it. Because I know, because I know life. That all of us are not doing our best in this area. And there are spouses who suffer and deal with things that they shouldn't have to deal with if their spouse is just dedicated to them as God desires for them to be. All right? The second enemy is found in verse 12 of chapter 7. Second enemy of marriage. And it is the unbelieving spouse. All right? And. Yeah, verse 10, 11, 12. 13. He gives us this admonition to those who are married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, let me just go ahead and clarify that this problem is rooted in past sin. Because how did you get an unbelieving spouse? One of two ways. Number one, both of you were unbelievers, which means that you were living in sin. One of you came to the knowledge of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior and you became a believer and now you're married to an unbelieving spouse. And you have to deal with all of the results of that past life of unbelief with her or him. It's rooted in that past sin. Or you were a believer and you married an unbeliever, which is not right because the Bible tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked with one another. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? It is wrong for a person to marry an unsaved person if they themselves are a believer. And I have dealt, as a youth pastor for many years, I've dealt with teens all the time. And they would, oh, brother, just at this guy. He's such a hunk. He's so good looking. I said, is he saved? Uh, yeah. Where does he go to church? Uh, I don't know. I that should be the first thing that you ask, all right? Guys, the same way. You met this beautiful girl. I'm in love with her. She's so beautiful. Where should she go to church? I don't know. You ought to know, all right? You should never even be dating someone who's not a believer, all right? Because if you don't think that won't show up in the marriage down the road when the two of you are going in the opposite direction, it will ruin your marriage. It will confuse your children. You've got to be on the same page, all right? You've got to be on the same page. He says, but sometimes past sin is an enemy of marriage. And I... I will broaden the scope in order to make the point. Paul is talking about past sin strictly in the sense of one being an unbeliever. But can we agree with one another that past sin affects a lot of marriages? Oh, it does. Oh, it does. It does. There are things that some spouses just cannot forgive and won't let go. That's wrong on their part. It's wrong. It's wrong. If the others made it right, it's wrong. But it does affect it. It does affect it. Let me touch on this just for a second. There's often 
present suffering for past sin. But I don't have to be a victim to the past. Just because I've made mistakes, and I don't like the word mistake because I don't rarely make mistakes. They're not my mind are not mistakes. They're willful, presumptuous choices where I did wrong and I knew I was doing wrong. Occasionally it's a mistake, but mistake seems to let me off the hook a little too easy. But if I did things in my past that were wrong, and now I'm trying to live in the present, do I have God's second best for my life instead of his perfect will? See, there's a lot of teaching like that. That if you did these things, you know, you got divorced, whatever the case may be, now you have God's second best for your life, which makes you feel like you're a second class Christian, which makes you a victim for the rest of your life to your past. And that, that, that approach is wrong. I agree that there's present tense suffering for past sin. But the minute I am right with God, I'm in His perfect will for my life where I'm at. Because God's will is always perfect. I'm always right. And just because I've made stupid choices in the past, is my God not big enough to keep me right in His perfect will? Hey, most of you who are listening to this know that I am divorced and remarried. I, I, I hate it happened. It's 15 years ago. If you want to hold it against me and turn it off right now, I understand. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I think it's a little self-righteous because I know there are things in your life that have not been right in the past as well. But hey, if it bothers you that much, that's okay. And if you don't think I shouldn't teach or preach... Go ahead. You can turn it off. It's fine. I'm not going to be mad at you. I understand where you're coming from. Trust me, I've analyzed every passage of Scripture in regards to that. I'd be glad to discuss it with you sometime. But that was a sin 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Am I in God's second best place in my life? Oh, no, I'm in His perfect will. I'm in His perfect will for my life. He knows all things from the start to the beginning. And He knows and can take my foolishness and my stupidity and my... Oh, I can't think of the right words to just describe how dumb some of the stuff was that I did in the past. And in His foreknowledge and His wisdom can so weave His perfect will together that... Instead of my mistakes working against him, he uses them for his glory. Now that doesn't justify the mistakes and, no, and the sin and in no way do I mean it that way. But what I do mean is that God is big enough to overcome those things so that I am in this moment in his perfect will for my life in spite of all of the failure. Right? Past sin is an enemy of marriage. Uh, but we don't have to be victims to it. We can overcome it because God has overcame it. And the grace that God has given to us should be extended to our spouse and what God has joined together. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Let no man put asunder. Don't work on those things. And um, I'm never at the second best because of my sin. That's the devil's lie. The moment I get right with God, I can be in his perfect will. And then when I yield to him and his plan for my life uh, in this present moment, even now, God deals with me where I am and I can be in his perfect will where I am today. And you can too. You have to live as a victim of your past. What the devil would love to do, love to do is to get you to make the stupid choice and then beat you with guilt about the stupid choice and then limit your future potential because of the past stupid choice. That is Satan's lie every time. Our God came to redeem us and to restore us. He takes us in our stupidity and our stupid choices. He brings his blood and his grace and he cleanses us and makes us right and then places us in his 
perfect will where we are in His plan that has existed before the beginning of time to further His purposes even by our stupidity. That's how big our God is. So don't walk around here with your head hanging down like you're not worthy. You're not worthy. But none of us are. But our Savior is worthy. And because His worthiness, we can all lift our heads, we can praise Him, and He can use us. So the point that Paul is making is this. If you're married to someone who's unsaved and they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. Stay with them. You don't know the influence that you'll have on their life. And he speaks in these terms. You don't know the influence that you'll have on your children. You bring a sanctification to the marriage. And you bring a holiness to the marriage. And you might win your spouse to the Lord. Right? Now I doubt you'll win them by nagging them and beating them over the head and reminding them of how wrong they are and reading them verses of Scripture. Oh, but if you'll be gracious, if you'll be kind, if you'll spend time on your knees pouring out your heart to God, God can fight the fight internally that you can never touch. And He can win things and change things and He can do things in the lives of your spouse and in the lives of your children that you could never do yourself. But He can. Seek Him. His hand can turn and change things. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. If he can do it for the king, he surely can do it for your husband. He can do it for your wife. He can do it for your children. He can. And if they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. Stay with them. All right? But if they insist on departing, let them go. That's what the verse tells us. Let them go. All right? And you're not under bondage in that sense. And the bondage, I mean, is the restriction upon you to be faithful. They have chosen themselves to step away because of their unbelief. But the greater advantage to you is that you will stay with them and sanctify your home, sanctify your children by staying with an unbelieving spouse and not allowing yourself to be a victim to the enemy of the past sin. And you know, anything that God brings in our life and I'm learning this fresh and anew in some circumstances in my own home, not with Anna, but outside things, that anything that drives me to seek God and to pray, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it forces me back to my strength, to my solace, to my, my, my powerhouse, to, to the source of all that I need. It forces me to Him because when things are going wonderful, I have any problems. Oh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, as the song says. And I, that's how I live. And then trouble comes, difficulty comes, it drives me right back to him, right back to him. And so I view those things not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. All right, how much time do we have? Oh, one minute. Okay, all right. So there are two other enemies that we're going to talk about in regards to marriage. One is in verse 26 and 27, which I already touched on. And it, it is the local situations, the special trials of life, the persecution that they were dealing with, the things that you're dealing with. And then the second one we're going to deal with, which is really the fourth in our, in our countdown, is that in marriage, the joys of life are multiplied. And in marriage, the stress and problems of life are multiplied. And Paul gives us some counsel on those regards. All right, so next time we're together, we'll talk about those things. So be reading the book of 1 Corinthians, 16 chapters. Shouldn't take you long. You can read it every week. It would help you because you already know where we're going. All right, we're in chapter 7 right now. I still got a few days ahead of us where we're going to finish up the book, focus on these things, read them, understand them, grow in your knowledge of God. Secondly, what you can do is you can share this video. All right, my teaching is not great. I mean, but we're working our way through the Word of God, Word of God, and it'll appeal to somebody. Share it. Invite people to join Rooted, and they can be part of this. Like it. Appreciate your comments and your love that you send me. I really do. Now, remember, if you go to Liberty Church. 
that we will be meeting for our normal worship services next week, 9 and 11. Normal in the sense that we're able to come back together. We won't be shaking hands. Bring your own coffee. We're not fixing you any. All right. We're going to do our best to keep our distance a little bit. Try to honor some things. Keep everybody healthy. And if you feel concerned about coming back together that you think it's risky, it's, it's fine. I understand. Don't come. The services will still be live. You can participate in that way. We want you to do what's comfortable for you. But we will be having services at 9 and 11. Sunday school will be either taped or live between those two. Hope you'll watch it later on. I cannot tell you what you mean to me in these 10 weeks we've had together studying God's Word and watching these screens and reading your comments later. Thank you for encouraging my heart. Thank you for being my brothers and sisters in Christ, not in just in York, South Carolina, but in Kingsport, Tennessee, and Ohio, and Ohio, and other places, and Charleston, South Carolina, people I see who I know are watching, Spartanburg, these places. Thank you so much for the union and communion that we rejoice and share with in because of the Holy Spirit. And just think of the day it will be when we can come together with no restrictions for all eternity and worship Jesus Christ for his grace and goodness to us. Thank you for watching, Rooted. Like it, share it. Have a good day.